listening to the Bible 126 show. 1 Samuel 25 opens with the end of an era, and Samuel died. Samuel was a very, very pivotal person in the Old Testament. He was the last of the judges, in a sense, and he was the first of the prophets, in a sense. So we have the period of the judges, really, that close at Samuel. And, of course, the whole period of the prophets, the so-called major and minor prophets, as they're sometimes called, really uh, go from this point on. Samuel. And uh, very, very popular, very feared, but very popular in Israel. And uh, it's interesting to see the scriptures in eras of people. Uh, Samuel, of course, is one of those milestones. Review question. Who closes the Old Testament from a people point of view? John the Baptist. Oh, you guys have done your homework. Okay. Well, there will be a quiz. Okay. Chapter 25, verse 1. And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together. That's a bunch. In other words, everybody recognized, everyone mourned, everyone valued Samuel. All the Israelites were gathered together and lamented him and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And uh, the speculation is that it was probably a garden tomb in his home, very much as Manasseh. That was in 2 Kings 21, 2 Chronicles 33, for those of you who want to draw those parallels. David goes to the wilderness of Paran, which is a desert area in the northeast part of the Sinai. Verse 2. And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. The man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in uh, Carmel. Now, don't confuse this Carmel with the Carmel that's near Haifa. This really uh, is also recorded as Carmel. It's seven miles south of Hebron, if we understand it right. And um, now this, business, this, this man's name, uh, verse 3, and now the name of the man was Nabal. Now, you miss part of the story by not knowing what the word Nabal really can be translated into. Fool. I don't know what his parents were thinking of, but anyway. <laughs> These things often, though, are reflexive. These are often reflexive. It's sort of like saying, uh, who would name your son Quisling? Well, the meaning for Quisling came out of the conduct of a guy by the name of Quisling. So, the, the, in other words, the word Nabal, meaning fool, could derive. I don't know this. I'm speculating, conjecturing. So sometimes you can make too much of that. But it's interesting that the name Nabal uh, does mean fool, as we will uh, see as it goes. Um, they say opposites attract, right, girls? So Abigail does pretty well for herself. She's only got three uh, assets, uh, She's intelligent, she's beautiful, and she's humble. And, uh, well, two out of three ain't bad, right? No, never mind, never mind. Okay. No, right, okay. No, Abigail does really well for herself, and this chapter uh, uh, really uh, shows her up as being very, very sharp young gal. Okay, so anyway, verse 3. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and his, the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. But the man was churlish and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. I don't like the way it says that. It sort of disparages the house of Caleb. I always thought pretty highly of Caleb, so I, I, don't, I don't necessarily connect the adjectives with uh, his lineage here. But in any case, verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. 
And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall you say unto him who liveth in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shearers, now thy shepherds who live here with us, we hurt them not, neither was there anything missing unto them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask the young men, and they will show thee, wherefore let the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. Give, I pray thee, whatsoever cometh to thine hand unto thy servants and to thy son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all those words uh, in the name of David and ceased. You have to get the picture. He's a very prosperous businessman, but of course in the region is David and his army. And uh, they, in effect, are uh, going to operate as mercenaries here, in a sense. And uh, verse 10, And Nabal answered David's servant and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not from where they are? And so David's young men turned their way and went again and came, told him all these things. And David said unto his men, Gird ye every man his sword. He's my kind of guy. <laughs> Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. I assume he's still carrying Goliath's sword. So that's a... Anyway. Uh, and there went up uh, after David about 400 men. And 200 abode by the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us, and we, hurt, uh, and, and we were hurt, uh, not hurt. Neither missed we anything as long as we uh, went with them when we were in the fields. And they, were, uh, and they were a wall unto us, both by night and day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, they were in, in, enjoying the protection. This is not a peaceful land with the Philistines and what have you. So so uh, that's a non-trivial issue to abide under their protection. But in any case, verse 17. Now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do, for evil is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a worthless fellow that a man cannot speak to him. <laughs> King James doesn't lack specificity, does it? <laughs> then Abigail made haste and took 200... You know, it's interesting, first of all, Abigail realizes that it would be foolish to debate with her husband about this issue. Here's an army out there that's, that's headed up by the next king of the land. And you don't make him mad. I mean, that's just not too smart. You don't treat, treat, treat him poorly. And so Abigail's a little smarter than that, but she's also smart enough to know she's not going to argue with her husband. So what does she do? Verse 18, Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and 200 skins of wine and five sheep ready dressed, and five measures of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on asses. See, Nabal is a very prosperous businessman, so Abigail has resources at her disposal. That's a real catering service. Huh? Verse 19, she said unto her servants, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so as she rode on the ass that she came down by the top of the mountain. And behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, 
Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him. And he hath requited me evil for good. So and more so do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by the morning light any male. In other words, he's going to slaughter all the males of his, of his flocks and so forth. That's what it's implied here. That was his... That was his reaction all of this. Verse 23, And when Abigail saw David, she hastened and alighted from the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground and fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thy hearing and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this worthless fellow, even the ball. For as his name is, so is he. <laughs> that sort of punctures my conjecture up front, doesn't it? Nabal is his name, so folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young man of my Lord, whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth, and as, the, as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withheld thee from coming to shed blood, and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, let now... Now, now let thine enemies and they that seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men who follow my Lord. I pray thee, forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all thy days. She's saying quite a mouthful here. Obviously, uh, humbling herself before David, taking the blame for the whole thing, offering this uh, bounty to his men, but also acknowledging his right to the kingship. Word's gotten around. And uh, so uh, she, she, she knows what she's doing. Verse 29. Yet a man is risen to pursue thee and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life which the Lord thy God, uh, with the Lord thy God. And the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. This whole thing right now, well, we, we gotta, we've got uh, two more verses here, and then we'll recap it. And it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done for my Lord according to all the good that he hath spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord either that thou hast shed blood without cause, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. Quite a speech in verses 24 through 31. It's a rather masterpiece of feminine charm, wisdom, grace. She confesses the wrong done. She makes restitution. She asks forgiveness. And she climaxes with an acknowledgment of David's right to the throne. Well-organized peace. Well-organized peace. One comment on verse 29. There's a strange, bound in the bundle of the living. That's a straight, doesn't seem to make much sense to us. It's a metaphor that reflects the custom of binding valuables in a bundle to protect them from injury. It's a sort of, it's a metaphor uh, of, of, uh, of the day bound in the bundle of the living. In other words, 
in, in being collected, there's, there's safety. <clears throat> now, that's, that's, her, that's her speech. Now, what, what's the reaction? Verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice. See, she's saying, don't shed blood, because that'll come back at you, see? And David recognizes the wisdom of that. He said, blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou who hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with my own hand. Vengeance is whose? Who belongs? Whose who's claim? We've covered that a couple of times. Okay. Deuteronomy, Romans, right. Okay. Okay. So, uh, in other words, her grace has done David a huge favor. It is... It is uh, assuaged his anger and, and his, his desire for vengeance. Verse 34. For in very deed, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, who hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hastened and come to meet me, surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any male child. Don't mess around with David, huh? David's quite a guy. Stand back and try to put him in perspective. Minister of music. That's a side of David we should not lose sight of. Minister of music. Great wisdom. But also a no-nonsense, uh, very macho warrior. And uh, he was, he was, he was going to go at it here. Verse 35. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. That's just the half of it. He's going to accept her a lot more in a minute. <laughs> Verse 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Wherefore she told him nothing, lesser more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning... When the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as stone. Suffered a stroke and paralysis, in effect. And it came to pass, about ten days after, that the Lord smote Nabal, and he died. So who settled the score for David? God did. Boy, if we could just remember that, hmm? God will take care of it. I've thought a lot about that lately. Yeah. Verse 39. And when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who hath pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and hath kept his servant from evil. For the Lord hath returned the wickedness of Nabal upon his own head. And David sent and talked with Abigail to take her in marriage. Pretty sharp guy. He knew a good thing when he saw it. Huh? Now, if you have a rabbinical mind, you're wondering, how did David arrange? Never mind. All right. Okay. Verse 40. And when the servants of David were come to Abigail to Carmel, they spoke to her, saying, David sent us unto thee to take thee to him in marriage. And she arose and bowed herself on her, on her face to the earth and said, Behold... Let thine handmaid be a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Boy, you get a huge window into her soul, don't you? Interesting person. 
intelligent, beautiful, and graced with humility. Verse 42, And Abigail hastened and arose and rode upon an ass with five damsels of hers who went after her, and she went after the messengers of David to become and became his wife. David also took Hinnom of Jezreel, and they were also, both of them, his wives. But Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, a son of Laish, who was of Galleon. It's interesting that uh, David starts a harem with two wives. That's a violation of Deuteronomy 17.17, and uh, we'll hear more of that. The fact that it occurs does not mean it's a good idea, guys. And I've told you what the Arabs say about women. One is too many and ten not enough. Something like that. Bad, yeah. Whenever I pull a crack like that, uh, my wife really works me over later, so I should say that. I should. That's my, my, I have a, my spiritual gift is flippancy, I think. It's interesting that the uh, writer here, the penman is doing this, so Saul, he reminds us in the last verse of chapter 25. Saul had given Michael his daughter to David's wife to Palti, which obviously another insight into Saul, but it's also just a subtle reminder that after all of this, because it's quite a pleasant chapter after some of the things we've gone through, uh, it's just a reminder that David is still living under Saul's threat. And uh, it's important to keep that in mind. We feel pretty good after chapter 25. It's kind of a light chapter, and it's a real positive, upbeat thing. Let's not forget that David is a fugitive, running for his life. We need to have that in mind as we plunge into chapter 26, which is a, another interesting contrast between David and Saul. Because once again, David has an opportunity to upstage Saul the king in a very important way. We're going to notice in chapter 26 that there's, very, there's a lot of similarities to chapter 24, but it is different. It's another occasion. And... Uh, well, let's go in. Chapter 26, verse 1. And the Ziphites came unto Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hekiah, which is before Jeshimon? Well, the Ziphites are the real tattletales, aren't they? They were the ones that stirred it up a couple of chapters ago. So once again, they're informing. And I don't know if they're getting paid in hard currency. They're certainly getting paid in favors of the king, and that's where they were making, that's where they're placing their bet. Tragic. Verse 2, Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekiah, which is before Jeshimon, by the way. But David abode in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul was come in very deed. David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, And David beheld the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host. See, Abner is the the, uh, head of the joint chiefs there. He's the guy that's the military leader under Saul. Abner is his bodyguard. Abner's in charge of the host. So anyway, David notices where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the captain of his host. And Saul lay in the trench, and the people encamped round about him. Then answered David and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, 
whatever. <laughs> Brother to Joab. Joab's the other, you know, uh, he's the leader under David. Uh, saying, who will go down with me to Saul, to the camp? Boy, you want a, a night patrol, that's a dandy. Saul is in the middle of 3,000 warriors, hand-picked guys. That's a lot of guys. We're going to go down and see Saul, huh? Who wants to come along, guys? Who would raise your hand? And that deal like that. Hmm? Abishai said, I will go with thee. And so, and David and Abishai uh, came to the uh, people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping within the trench and his spear stuck in the ground at his head. But Abner and the people lay round about him. So they could spot the place because Saul had the spear. Now, this, we leave it, I don't know if this is the same javelin that three times he tried to pin David to the wall with. But this probably was not. This probably was a war spear, and it, but it was recognizable as a, a badge of his rank. So they could spot where he was by the spear. Stuck in the ground by his head where he's sleeping. And uh, verse 8, And then Abishai said to David, God hath delivered thine enemy into thy hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with the spear even to the earth at once, and I will not spite him the second time. He's saying, let me at him, once will be enough. So David's got his opportunity, doesn't he? David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David took that very seriously. David had the chance two chapters ago in the, in the cave and withheld from doing so. This, in a sense, is even a better opportunity. He didn't have to do it himself. He can have one of his henchmen do it. But no way. David refuses to do it. We're going to see later that an Amalekite assists Saul in committing suicide. What's David's reaction? Killed him. He had no right to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. David's got an interesting attitude. Here's the guy that's out to kill him. He's leaving it in the Lord's hands. He won't raise his hand against Saul. And it's probably very difficult for Saul to understand. Because David is not a namby-pamby pushover. He's a warrior, a military leader of some repute. But he won't touch Saul. He's had several opportunities, this being one of them. And he won't do it. Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? What applications have for you and I? Let me mention one. Christian publishing. You just wouldn't believe the books being published by quotation mark Christians, close quotation mark, offering a legacy of hate against other Christians who have published a book they don't agree with. No love, no confrontation, no allowance. Some of the stuff I've come across in the last year or so by getting closer to some of the published materials just leaves me flabbergasted at the kind of stuff that is printed and sold in Christian bookstores under a Christian banner, which has no motive other than to destroy the careers and lives of other Christians that are well known. It sells books. I see people packaging books to look like they're printed by a popular author so that people can buy them in the store and not discover it's not by so-and-so until they get home and they discover it's a fraud by some other people writing about that author. But it's packaged to look like it's 
so you know such and such a topic by so and so, and just amazing to the kind of stunts that in secular business would put you in the courts in 24 hours. Just ridiculous. But amazes me is that these are people that call themselves Christians. What's interesting is, if you disagree with someone doctrinally, fine. But I really am intrigued with 1 Samuel 26, 9. Because before I would publish a book like that, I would ask myself, is the person I'm writing about the Lord's anointed or not? If he is, and I don't agree, doesn't mean I have to agree with his doctrine, but I wouldn't stretch forth my hand against him. Right? One of the questions I'm going to ask you tonight, was Saul saved? Saul's in bad shape spiritually, isn't he? Is he in fellowship? One of the questions you're going to want to ask yourself tonight is whether Saul was saved or not. And we'll find, it, we'll find that answer from a very interesting source in a couple of chapters. And we'll suggest that despite everything else, he was. So the question is, do you stretch forth your hand against Saul? Is Saul right? No. Do you stretch forth your hand against him? No. I remember some years ago I was asked to uh, act as an arbitrator in a dispute between two Christian publishers. And one of the two parties was clearly anointed of the Lord for, from a lot of other evidences. And uh, I blew my stack in the middle of the discussion by quoting some, I think it's 105, 15, basically, you know, touch not, the Lord, touch not the Lord's anointed, do my prophet no harm. It quieted things down because I was angry, and I don't normally get angry in those situations. But it's interesting how we, as we traffic in the Christian community, there are prominent people in the community that you may not agree with, that may have some doctrinal difference. Fine. You have to, but the question you have to determine very carefully, are they anointed of God or not? Like the anointing of God doesn't mean you'll agree with all their doctrines. And and uh, some of my closest, dearest, most prominent friends happen to be, have some views that didn't agree with. But boy, that doesn't cloud the fact that they were anointed and that they were 24 hours a day uh, warriors for the faith. And so as I see these uh, books, it just flabbergasts me. And 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 the author, the, the conspiring authors organizing attempts by bookstores to pull their rivals' books off the shelf. That kind of foolishness. Just tragic. Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? An interesting verse. As I talk to you, it occurs to me when I get home tonight, I'm going to mail that to some people I know. We had a, I was confronted out here as we were leaving one night. Uh, someone came up to me and said, Chuck, how can you appear on TBN? I was sort of startled. You know, I, I'm not here to extol Trinity Broadcasting Network particularly, but by golly, you know, you got several hundred stations and 40 million viewers. That's a channel that's available to Christian, the Christian community. It's pretty exciting. And I was all upset that I would appear on a channel because they had seen somebody on that channel they didn't agree with. I thought, what a fascinating mindset. You know, does that mean we should only be on channels where we will edit 
agree with the editorial content? That eliminates a lot of channels. <laughs> but even worse than that, would I, who is going to decide whether A or B or C will show up on Tuesday for a, you know, whatever? In other words, raise some, you know, I'm, 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 I'm sort of for this, uh, this free speech idea, especially in the Christian community. And, and uh, it's interesting that uh, I noticed from the Orange County Enquirer and other such media that uh, they're attacking TBN now. And I'm the last to, to, to know a lot about the inner workings, but I'm fascinated that of all the networks around, they seem to have kept themselves free of scandal. Uh, there seem to be forces abroad that are out to, to uh, do them in. All that tells me is that if Satan's upset with it, he must be doing something right. So that's... I, uh, I praise God for those channels, even though indeed there's a lot of material on those channels I, that aren't my tastes. But by golly, if the Lord's using it, boy, it, he certainly is. Flabbergasts me when Hal and I are hosting a show on that that we're live to 35 countries. It's in, 35 stations would be exciting. 35 countries, something else. So it's interesting. So one of the things that we need to be mature about, we'll see ministries that there may be this, that, or the other thing that we don't agree with. But the issue is, is the Lord blessing it? Is it getting the word out? Are lives being touched? Who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Moving on, verse 10. David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, and his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. Well, it's David's thing is it's God's hands. He's not going to be, he's not going to, come, he's not going to touch that one with a 10-foot javelin or something. Verse 11, the Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. But I pray thee, take now the spear that is at his head and the cruise of water and let's go. In other words, they grabbed the spear and the jug as, as sort of a pledge or a prize, a proof that they were there. And they split quietly. So David took the spear and the cruise of water from beside Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw it, nor knew it, neither awakened. They were for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord was fallen upon them. And there's probably a linguistic link to this to another deep sleep where uh, Adam got Eve as a result of that. But that's a different... I, I suspect, that despite the linguistic links, that that's a, it was a sleep of a different kind. But in any case, clearly God's hand was in it because God made it possible for them to get in and get out of there without being detected. Verse 13. Then David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill far off, a great space being between them. Now, he's got a good distance here, but he's in audio range. And does, I, I love this. He really, he really plays this. I, 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 uh, I really enjoy certain passages in the Bible. This is one of them. Also, Daniel 2, when Daniel interprets the dream. Boy, he really grandstands that. I love that. And uh, David, uh, David has some fun here. Uh, he's, he's not going to be on Abner's hit list here, or a hit parade. He'll be more on his, uh, he's probably on his hit list here. Um, verse 14, David cried to the people. Now, they're all waking up. You know, they had to, they're all really you know, out the night before. They're waking up, and they hear this voice from the top of the hill. He cried to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner. Now, get, get, understand who Abner was. He was the chief of the guard. Okay, he's a general in charge. And his most sacred task was to protect the life of the king. He may not win some battles, but boy, you protect the king, right? <laughs> David says to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, 
Answerest thou not, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who art thou who criest to the king? David said to Abner, Art not thou a valiant man? That's going to get his attention. And who is like to thee in Israel? Why then hast thou not kept thy lord the king? For there came one of the people in to destroy the king, thy lord. Boy, that's going to go over well with his boss, isn't it? Verse 16. This thing is not good that thou hast hast done. (laughs) Abner's leaning over his buddy. Who is that masked man, right? (laughs) This thing is not good that thou hast done. (laughs) As the Lord liveth, ye are worthy to die, because ye have not kept your master, the Lord's anointed. I can only imagine Abner's face as he's hearing all this. <laughs> You're worthy to die, Abner. The boss is listening, you know. He's, got, he's writing this all down. And now see where the king's spear is and the cruise of water that was at his head. See, this is where the whole dialogue, monologue, goes from a crank call to brutal reality. This isn't just some guy tormenting Abner. Where is that spear? Where, 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 where is that cruise of water? You can fill in your own blanks of what he was mumbling to his buddies here. And Saul knew David's voice and said, Is this thy voice, my son, David? <laughs> David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. I have no idea what Abner was doing. <laughs> I can conjure up several scenarios in my mind. He said, Why doth my Lord thus pursue after his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now here David is shifting gears from taunting Abner, although he's quite serious, because that was Abner's job. And he is worthy to die because someone could have killed the king. And here's the proof. But I can't help but sort of see it. It's just a taunt. But here, David is shifting gears here and getting very serious with Saul, raising a very fundamental point. Verse 19. Now, therefore, I pray thee, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord have stirred thee up against me, let him accept an offering. But if they be the children of men... Cursed be they before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go, serve other gods. What David is saying is, if this split between you and I, Saul, is of the Lord, let's offer an offering. There are procedures to deal with that. He's prepared to do that, to make peace, if this division is of the Lord, if this hatred that Saul has for David, this, this animosity, is of the Lord. Let's deal with that, is David's challenge. If it comes from men, right, let them be cursed. Why? Because they have driven David uh, from abiding in the inheritance of the Lord. And where he says, go serve other gods, what that really means is he is driven out of the land. To an Israelite, the place you worship 
is at the temple. Is at, and by not being able to enjoy that, he's being forced into alien territory. He's obviously not worshiping other gods literally. It's a, it's a way of reflecting the fact that he's, in effect, ostracized from the fellowship that he as an Israelite is entitled to. Verse 20, Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as one doth hunt a partridge in the mountains. In other words, you got overkill. you got 3,000 guys coming after me. Well, again, Saul uh, uh, may not be very steadfast. Uh, he may, he's sincere at the moment. You girls know what I mean when a guy is sincere at the moment. <laughs> Short memory. Short memory, yes, exactly. And I hadn't thought about that. Saul has a memory lapse, yes. <laughs> hadn't looked at it that way. That's an interesting insight. <laughs> Verse 21. Then, then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have erred exceedingly. I believe Saul is absolutely sincere. I don't think he's feigning at all. My opinion doesn't mean it's right, but I just mean my, I read this as Saul at the moment is, 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 has remorse. He's sincere. He isn't very constant, very steadfast, and David does, is obviously very wise in not trusting that resolve. Doesn't mean he's insincere. Are you as scared as I am? Do those shoes fit? We all are sincere from time to time. Huh? Do we have the resolve to have constancy, steadfastness? See, we can be, we can be from moment to moment as sincere as Saul was. But unless someone can rely on that, it's not a very value. In fact, it's treachery, isn't it? Interesting. David answered and said, Behold the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and fetch it. So in other words, he, he proves that this is not just a boast. Verse 23, And the Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. And behold, as thy life was much esteemed this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much esteemed in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Wow, that's a neat little twist. See, as I have been faithful not to hurt you, Saul, you expect him to sort of reverse it, right? So Saul, you know, you should, no, no, it's the Lord that he's looking to, not Saul. See, interesting. David's transaction is not with Saul. His faithfulness is not towards Saul. His faithfulness is towards the Lord. I don't know David's heart. I suspect if that wasn't the factor, that Saul would have been dog meat long ago. But David's faithfulness is not towards Saul. It's to the Lord. And what protects Saul is that Saul is the Lord's anointed. Notice carefully David's whole mindset as he, he goes through this here. The Lord rendered every man his righteousness and faithfulness, for the Lord hath delivered thee into my hands, as they, and I would not stretch forth mine hand against the king. No, no, against the Lord's anointed. See, it's the Lord that's the polarity here. It's the Lord is the relationship, the transaction that David is executing is with the Lord. Says, and behold, as thy life was much esteemed this day in mine eyes, 
So let my life be much esteemed in the eyes of Saul? No, the Lord. Interesting. You follow me? You would expect verse 24 to be antiphonal. You know, as he spared Saul, Saul, you should spare mine. No, no. As I spared Saul, let the Lord spare mine. See, his transaction is with the Lord. You get a great insight into how David is put together here. And behold, as my life was much esteemed this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much esteemed in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulations. All of them. Not just your Saul, the Philistines, or whatever else comes. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about Saul or his buddy or, or, or Joab is, or whatever. He's talking about God. Verse 25, Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David, thou shalt both do great things and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Interesting. By the way, this is the last meeting between David and King Saul. The king, who's about to be over, and the king-elect, if you want to use that term, or forthcoming king. This is the last time they see each other. First Samuel 27. <laughs> David's an enterpriser. This is... First Samuel 27, And David said in his heart... I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. <laughs> After all of this, you know, it makes it would make a great movie scene. You could just see the camera work. It'd be fun. But David's not uh, moved by the theatrics here. He knows that Saul is unstable. Doesn't mean he was insincere at the time. He's just totally unstable. So David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any border of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. In other words, as long as he's in Israel, it's going to be cat and mouse all the time. So he's got a scheme where he's going to go to the land of the Philistines, the land of Israel's enemies. Gutsy guy. David, David's our kind of guy. Verse 2, David arose and he passed over with 600 men who were with him uh, to uh, Achish, the son of Maoch, the king of Gath. Gath is one of the five major Philistine cities. David dwelt with Achish in Gath, he and his men, every man with his own household. Even David with his two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's wife. And it was told Saul that David was fled to Gath and he sought no more again for him. So that took the heat off. A little strange having the heat of the Philistines around you rather than the heat of the king, but uh, David can, uh, <laughs> can lead to some interesting issues here. Verse 5, David said to Achish, If I have now found grace in thine eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should thy servant dwell in the royal city with thee? See, he and the 600 have been received by the king of Gath. David saying, hey, you know, this, we're not, that's not appropriate. We shouldn't be in the royal city. Give us some, designate some spot in the country, and our 600 will 
And they're not just 600 men. It's their households and the rest. It's quite an entourage, right? And uh, why is he uh, redoing this? Probably for two reasons. First of all, he doesn't want to be under constant surveillance. If he's in the royal city, they watch his movements. If he can be out in the country, he's got some opportunity to, to operate undercover a little bit. The other po- probability is that in Goth, he was in the pagan influence of Goth. The whole Philistine idolatry environment is something he just soon distanced himself from. So, uh, very shrewd strategy. He spends 16 months with the Philistines. What does that do for him? He gets familiar with the geography and the terrain. I don't know if any of you, uh, no West Pointers here, infantry trained officers. Anyway, the whole thing in warfare is to know the terrain. Now, he did well in the wilderness of Judea because he was a shepherd there. That's why he could generally outwit Saul and his men. When he, gets to be, when he becomes king, he's going to be fighting whom? The Philistines. So by being among them, he knows the terrain, he knows their practices, he's picking up valuable, valuable background. Shrewd strategic thinker. And, uh, and I don't think that's contrived. Uh, I think that's exactly the kind of... Uh, mentality that uh, that uh, a good military leader would have to learn what he can from the situation but so he's uh, he's joined the Philistines and uh, uh, it's hard for us to reconstruct the politics of the time but it's intriguing that they would receive him because he was well see he was a a uh, an accomplished warrior and he had 600 men that's a formidable force they know that he's at odds with the king of Israel <laughs> So it's not unusual for them to maybe cautiously but receive him. And and, uh, and the fact that they don't fully trust him is to his advantage, as we'll see shortly. It keeps him out of a real sticky wicket coming, forthcoming here. But anyway, uh, David proposes to the king uh, that uh, give us some place in the country so we get away from the royal city. Verse 6, Achash gave him Ziklag that day. Wherefore, Ziklag pertaineth unto the kings of Judah unto this day. So Ziklag is given to them, and Ziklag becomes his base of operations and, and uh, uh, a major center for him. It's about 13 miles northwest of Beersheba. You know where Beersheba is in the south. It's really hot. That's real desert country. So we're about 13 miles uh, northwest from there. This is going to be his base, and what he's going to do is attack all kinds of desert tribes. The tribes he's going to attack are the tribes that are not just the enemies of the Philistines, they're enemies of Israel. And when he attacks these tribes, he makes sure there are no survivors. So that he'll never get back to Achish, what he's really up to. He will just get the impression that, gee, he's fighting on our behalf. He won't realize the the focus and the the selectivity that uh, David and his men are going to be engaging in. And so uh, they will be working essentially the North Sinai. And uh, among those, of course, are the Amalekites and others. And so we'll see... David, in effect, is using the opportunity to um, fight Israel's enemies. Let's see. We were down to about uh, verse 7. At the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was a full year and four months. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old, the inhabitants of the land, as thou goest ashore even unto the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left neither man nor woman alive and took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the apparel and returned and came to Achish. And Achish says, where have ye made a raid today? 
And David said, against the south of Judah and against the south of the Jeremites and against the south of the Kenites. See, he speaks geographically, not tribally. So this is all very acceptable to Achish. And uh, so uh, verse 11, David saved neither man nor woman alive to bring tidings to Gath, saying, lest they should tell us, saying, so did David and so will be his manner all the while he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying, He hath made his people Israel utterly to abhor him. Therefore he shall be my servant forever. See, what Achish is what's masked by David's uh, careful answer here is that he's very selective. He's not, he's not fighting those that would offend Israel. Rather, he's fighting those tribes that are, in effect, mutual enemies. Okay. I think that covers pretty much. I think we're. Uh, I think we got it. Now we have the spooky one. This is this is uh, this is one we should have saved for Halloween. First Samuel twenty-eight. Puzzling, puzzling chapter. A lot of people get hung up with First uh, Samuel twenty-eight. So before we jump in, we should uh, uh, recognize the, the uh, predicament. This is Saul's lowest point spiritually, in, as, as his reign, his darkest hours as a, reign, uh, as a king, in his reign as king. The Philistines are ready to attack, and he has lost Samuel. He, the Lord is silent. He tries to find out what's the Lord would have in mind, he hears nothing because he's alienated from God. He's in panic. And this isn't sort of an academic exercise. The enemies are at the gate, and they're going to come slaughter him. So Saul resorts to spiritism. And don't misunderstand the chapter. This chapter is in no way an endorsement of spiritism. Some people try to bend things around to make it sound that way. Wrong. We're obviously going to be coming approaching Saul and the witch of Endor. It's interesting that Saul let the Philistine threat get so large because it's about to really hurt him. <laughs> his preoccupation with David apparently has caused him to neglect his strategic moves here, and so he's got a problem. Now, the Philistines in the meantime have changed their strategy. The Philistines are going to do something that's for them unique. They're going to come up through the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is an advantage to them because there's room to use, to take advantage of the chariots. In some parts of the terrain where it's tight, a lot of ravines, the chariots are no advantage. In the Jezreel Valley, it's a terrific advantage. And that's the advantage, obviously, that the Philistines have, is their chariots. Also, by coming down that valley, they cut Saul off from the northern tribes. Very shrewd military maneuver, and it's very effective, as we'll see. Now, David's got a, Saul's got his problems, right? Look at the predicament of David. David has joined the Philistines. And now the Philistines are going up against Israel. David is between a rock and a hard place because he doesn't want to have the Philistines turn on him. And yet, there's no way David, as king of Israel, is going to fight, the forthcoming is going to fight Israel. He's got himself in a jam. How does he get himself out of the jam? 
trust the Lord. The Lord gets them out in a way that only the Lord can. Kind of neat. We've got a neat Lord. He's, he's fun. Chapter 28, verse 1, It came to pass in those days when the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Know thou assuredly that thou shalt go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. David saying, Great. But for the glory and honor, I'd rather pass. huh? No. Verse 2, David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. Nice ambiguous remark. You know, David was skilled. He was pretty cool. Achish said to David, Therefore will I make thee keeper of mine head forever. David is not only with the Philistines, he's appointed the bodyguard of King Achish. How about them apples? You're David, what are you going to do? Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. I don't know what that means. Sometimes, you know, as a manager, having a well-turned phrase is important. I remember once I was a senior officer in the Air Force and I had a very senior civilian that was totally incompetent. I was going, I went through, through six months of paperwork to try to remove him from office when he got a job offer from a rival organization. And I couldn't give him a recommendation because it would undo all my legal work. And yet I wanted him to, he's got a wife and kids, I'd love to have him get a job. So I wrote a wonderful letter saying how, you know, mentioned several positive things. It says, I strongly recommend him for any position for which you find him qualified. <laughs> he got the job. <laughs> so I watched, I watched David here with a great deal of respect. He's my kind of guy. You know, find, find that way to, didn't lie, didn't lie. Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. Watch me, Achish, yeah. Achish says, David, therefore I'll make the keeper of mine head forever. <laughs> now the writer reminds you of a few things here. Verse 3, now Samuel was dead. What's that got to do with anything? Saul is cut off from the Lord. See? Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, even unto his own city. And Saul had put away those who were mediums and the wizards out of the land. Saul's got a problem. He has ordered all the wizards and mediums and necromancers. We're dealing with necromancy here because they are against the, the, the Torah. Taking notes, Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 13. Exodus 22, 18. Leviticus 19, 31 just for starters. But you can't be uh, familiar with the Torah at all and not realize that casting horoscopes, dealing with mediums, I suppose channelers are all right, huh? I'm being facetious, of course. You can call them by new names. It's the old craft. They're satanic. They are satanic, and their, de their, 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 their goal, the strategy, is your destruction to get enticed into those things. And we could spend all evening talking about it, but to an audience that's this sophisticated spiritually, I don't think we have to badger that one. The big thing to recognize is that even the little toys, like Ouija boards or the little astrology column in the newspaper, what harm can it cause, those are all what, the, what are known in the trade as entries. That's where it can begin. Dangerous stuff. 
The Bible is silent about lots of superstitions. There are all kinds of quaint beliefs in these ancient cultures the Bible makes no comment on because they are just that. They're quaint beliefs. Superstitions as such are not the issue. Astrology is not a harmless superstition. Fooling around with Ouija boards or attending seances or even some of the heavier stuff. Dangerous stuff. They were capital crimes in Israel. God was very serious about spiritism in any shape or size. It's interesting that the fountainhead of the New Age was Babylon. All the ideas in the New Age started where? The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. God dealt with it then. It got repackaged. And as the, after the Babylonian Empire got uh, conquered by the Persian Empire, the center of that religious system changed some names but moved to Pergamos. Book of Revelation, letter to Pergamos, where Satan's seat is. And then, of course, with the rise after the Greeks and the Romans, with the political power shifting to Rome, the religious system also moved to Rome. In Zechariah chapter 5, we have a prophecy which says that system is going to relocate once more to Babylon. Saddam Hussein has spent 20 years rebuilding Babylon, and if we understand the biblical scenario properly, Babylon will emerge as a major economic center on the planet Earth. It also will be a major ecclesiastical center on the planet Earth. But its trappings, I believe, are being prepared already with the crystals and with the channeling and with the the one world movement. The interesting thing about the whole New Age thing isn't just the, the, the satanic doctrines that underlie it, but it's interesting the political overtones of a one world government that to get that altered state of consciousness globally and so forth. Interesting. Someone that's in the scripture, knows their Bible, should not be deceived by the new labels of the old ideas. You can call them mediums in the Old Testament. You can call them channeling in our day. It's the same stuff. Let's see what happens. Saul, apparently, when he was in a better spiritual frame of mind, had cleansed the land of mediums. Now, you and I, as sophisticated administrators, know that only meant one thing. They just went underground, right? Verse 4, And the Philistines gathered themselves together and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, <laughs> he was afraid, and his heart greatly trembled. His heart greatly trembled. The word trembled is the same word used in Exodus 19.18 with the quaking of Mount Sinai when the law was given. That's trembling. Okay. It's trembling for a lot of reasons. The Philistines are a formidable force, and he also is lonely. God is not... God is silent. God has given Saul ample opportunity to repent and uh, discover God's will. But uh, Saul had refused to do so. Back in chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, you can review at your leisure. So with the heavens silent, what does Saul do? He seeks out a medium. From bad to worse, huh? 
Verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. Then Saul said unto the servant, Seek me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said unto him, Behold, there is a woman who is a channeler at Endor. That's uh, Missler's translation. Now, Endor is four miles south of Mount Tabor on the hill of Moray, about six miles southeast of Nazareth. Not that that makes any difference. It's interesting, the word Endor means the fountain of habitation. (laughs) I don't know what kind of habitation, but uh, interesting. It's a town that's located in the tribal area of Issachar, but it was given to, allocated to Manasseh because of the members of his tribe that were living there in Joshua 17. If you remember our study of Joshua, that was... That was an allocation to the Manasseh, the half-tribe half Manasseh. And apparently, Manasseh did not drive out all the Canaanites as they were instructed to at the time of the conquest. And we find that in Joshua chapter 17, verse 12. Interesting, in Psalm 83, 9, we find that Endor formed a part of the plain of Kishon and thus was part of the battlefield of Megiddo and uh, was the scene of the defeat of Jabin and Sisera by Barak. That's in the book of Judges. Actually, yeah, book of Judges, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Now, the Hebrew word that we're using here for, that we translate medium is a woman who is a mistress of necromancy. Necromancy being communication with the dead, a, that particular type of spiritism. And this necromancy incurred the death penalty under the Torah. Leviticus 19.31, 26 and 7, excuse me. Leviticus 19.31, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 6 and verse 27. Deal with this. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 and 11. Death penalty for necromancy, expressly. So, uh, But Saul has his spies search one out. And apparently as they find on the grapevine, there's a medium at Endor. So verse 8, Saul disguised himself and went, uh, put on other raiment, and he went, two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, I pray thee, divine unto me as a medium, and, I, and, and bring me him up, whom I shall name unto thee. And the woman said unto him, Behold, thou knowest what Saul hath done, how he hath cut off those who are mediums, and the wizards, out of the land. Why then layest thou a snare for my life, to cause me to die? Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord liveth, there shall no punishment happen to thee for this thing. There will be punishment, but not to thee. <laughs> Saul is the guy that's going to get it, as you'll see. In any case, he swears to her by, as the Lord liveth. I find that kind of ironic. Huh? As the Lord liveth. Verse 11. Then, the woman, then said the woman, Whom shall I bring up unto thee? Okay, you know, it's a deal. Name your, name your target here. <laughs> he said, Bring me up Samuel. That's got to shake her up. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. In other words, what we're going to discover here is that she was shook. This was no chicanery. This was not her normal contact. Whatever is going on here was not what she was used to. Something else is going on, and it really rattles her cage. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. The woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why hast thou thou deceived me? For thou art Saul. 
How'd she figure that out? Interesting issue. But she suddenly, when she realized it's really Samuel, she realizes something's going on here. Verse 13. And the king said unto her, Be not afraid. For what sawest thou? And the woman said unto Saul, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. And he said unto her, What form is he of? And she said, An old man cometh up, and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed himself. The person I find it fascinating to try to visualize is the medium. Boy, she's got to be shook. Because uh, <laughs> this is over her head. Here's the king bowing down before this person who she's not used to. <laughs> Verse 15, and Samuel said to Saul, important phrase, many commentators, all kinds of theories and viewpoints on this episode. Well, it wasn't really Samuel or this or that. Hey, the scripture says it was Samuel. The medium said it was Samuel. Saul said it was Samuel. And most important, verse 15, and Samuel said to Saul. Now, I don't know how many of you want to attack that textual criticism. It seemed pretty clear to me. So whatever's going on here is an exception. God has stepped in and permitted this for his purposes. I can't, in my wildest imagination, view this episode as a sanctioning of spiritism, although some people try to make it that way. And Samuel said to Saul, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? Saul answered, I am very much distressed. (laughs) Hang on, Saul, it's going to get worse. I'm very much distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and answereth me no more, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called thee, that thou mayest make known unto me what I shall do. (laughs) Samuel says, Saul. (laughs) Then Then said Samuel, Why then dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee and has become thine enemy? In other words, you know, same as saying, you know, Saul, you got it about right. Philistines up against you. The Lord shut you down. Why are you bothering me about it? You know, (laughs) why dost thou ask of me, seeing the Lord has departed from thee and has become thine enemy? In other words, who is Samuel? But the Lord's anointed. I mean, his role with Saul when he was alive was to communicate to the Lord. Saul, you figured out by now, you finally got it through your head that the Lord's turned against you. What do you want from me? Verse 17. And the Lord hath done to thee as he spoke by me. For the Lord hath torn the kingdom out of thine hand and hath given it to thy neighbor, even to David. In other words, uh, Saul, you've figured it all out. Exactly what I told you back then has happened. You know, so what else, you see? You could almost do the Samuel dialogue with a Hebrew accent, I suppose, but I won't. uh, Okay. Because thou obeyest not the the voice of the Lord, nor executest his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore hath the Lord done this thing unto thee this day. Well, just an echo of what Samuel told him way back, way, way back. Samuel goes on. Moreover, the Lord will also 
deliver Israel with thee into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow thou shalt, thou and thy sons, uh, be with me. Well, Saul, how about that? Your nation is going to get clobbered by your enemies. And you and your sons are going to die. That's the net of it. So what else you want to know? You didn't want to know, don't ask, huh? The Lord also shall deliver the host of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. That's, that's about as bad a news as you can get. But let me mention one thing to you. What does verse 19 suggest to you about the spiritual condition of Saul? He said, amazing as it may seem. See, that's why many commentators draw an analogy between Saul and what we call in the New Testament a carnal Christian. You see, it's both scary that you can, gee, be saved and still get into the trouble that Saul did. But you see, salvation is one thing, and, and, and the rewards and the rest of it is another. There's two different dimensions. And it's interesting, we see that very clearly in Galatians and the New Testament in general and several of the epistles very, very crisply. But it's not often you really see the same clarity in the Old Testament. And Saul's an example. The spiritual condition of Saul and the spiritual condition of David are pretty antithetical, aren't they? And yet, David is going to be, and his sons will be with whom? With Samuel. And we know from the Scripture that there's a gulf. You can't, you know, even in the Old Testament construct of Sheol and Hades, that there's a gulf fixed between and that says that uh, Saul will be in Abraham's bosom. Interesting. But Samuel goes on. He says that you're going to die, and the Lord also will deliver the host of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell immediately full length on the earth and was very much afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no bread at all, day or all the night. By the way, do you notice that Samuel never answered his question? There's no question, no answer to the question. Samuel, what shall I do? <laughs> Samuel never answered that question. Nothing to do, Saul. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a done deal. Verse 21, the woman came unto Saul and saw that he was very much troubled and said unto him, Behold, thine handmaid hath obeyed thy voice, and I have put my life in my hand and have hearkened unto thy words which thou didst speak unto me. Now therefore I pray thee, hearken thou also unto the voice of thine handmaid, and let me set a morsel of bread before thee, and eat, that thou mayest have strength when thou goest thy way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, compelled him, and he hearkened unto their voice. So he rose from the earth and sat upon the bed. And the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she hastened and killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she brought it before Saul and before his servants, and they did eat. Then they rose up and went away that night. Main issues, I think, before we, before we leave the witch at Endor is to recognize that the woman was surprised. There were no, trick, no tricks going on here. The classical treatment by the rabbis of this Old Testament passage 
is that this was a genuine appearance of Samuel for at least five observations that are worth mentioning here. The medium is surprised, not expecting this outcome. Saul himself identified Samuel. The message that he got was clearly from God. The text itself, of course, says that it was Samuel in three places, verses 12, 15, and 16. And the other comparison of this of calling someone up from the dead, we think of Matthew 17 in the Transfiguration, where we have Moses and Elijah. Okay. And it's interesting to me, the other observation is that Saul never did get his question. If spiritism is an answer, he never got his question. His, his question that he asked, he didn't get an answer to. And because uh, his fate was sealed. Okay. First Samuel 29. And this, remember where we left David. David was in a jam, huh? Verse 29, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. The lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed on in the rear with Achish. That is in the back with the king. Then said the princes of the Philistines, why do these Hebrews, why, uh, what do these Hebrews here? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who hath been with me these days or these years, and I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place which thou hast appointed him. And let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men. Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in the dance of saying, Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? It sounds like that song is still making hit parade here. Huh? <laughs> Verse 6. Then Achish said to David, and, he, and said unto him, Surely as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright, and thy going out and thy coming in with me in, in the host has, is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me uh, unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. Wherefore now return and go in peace, that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. Now, verse 8 shows you that David has another skill you didn't realize. We knew he was a poet. We know he was a musician. We knew he was a warrior. Did you know he was a consummate actor? He pretends to be outraged and offended. The distrust of the king's generals, give him his exit so he doesn't have to get caught in this battle with Israel. But he feigns outrage. He's trying to hide the fact that it's the best thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> David said to Achish, but what have I done? <laughs> and what hast thou found in thy servant so long as I have been with thee unto this day that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? Let me at him, Achish. Yeah. Achish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good in my sight as an angel of God, notwithstanding the prince of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore now, rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants who are come with thee, and as soon as ye are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning to return into the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. In other words, David's got his excuse, so they split, so they're not caught 
in, in, in the obvious uh, uh, predicament that was uh, emerging here. Okay. Okay. Chapter 30, we have an incident with Ziklag, uh, with David having been absent from Ziklag. There's some mischief afoot that David not only solves, but sets some precedents that occur, that, uh, that are very, very important in the later history. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1, it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken the women captives that were in it. They slew not any, neither great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. In other words, all the women of the, here, here, not only David's two wives, but all the household of his officers have been abducted and the city burned. So verse 3, And so David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's two wives were taken captives. Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. David was not too popular with his men, because they feel that his intrigues of the Philistines caused them to be absent, etc. So they blame David for this. So there's a, there's a lot of tension brewing here. People spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. What was David's response to this? David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Boy, that takes spiritual depth to look over or overlook or ignore the feelings of your peer group and keep your eye fixed on the Lord. Easy to say, tough to do. But David did it. He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar, the priest, uh, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me here the ephod. And Abathar brought there the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, the Lord answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and his six hundred men who were with him. And they came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. See, David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind who were so faint that they could not go over the Brook Besser. Brook Besser is a deep ravine. And by the time they got there, 200 of the guys were exhausted. So David leaves them there to guard the baggage and whatever. And the 400 that still had energy went over the ravine to, to accomplish the task. A very important principle is going to emerge here in a little bit. So get the picture. We've got a third of them left behind. Verse 11. And they found, the, they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David, and he gave him bread and did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, and he, uh, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water for three days and three nights. Okay. It's interesting because the same three days are the days that they marched, that they exhausted his men too. But in any case, verse 13. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou, and from where art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant unto Amalekite, and my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. Who made him sick? It would seem so, wouldn't it? Because three days ago is when they started marching. 
David's men had marched three days. When did the guy get sick? Interesting. But anyway, verse 14. We made an invasion upon the south of the uh, Cherethites and upon the border that belongs to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said unto him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. In other words, the Egyptian knew the turf. He knew where they were. And when he brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the hand, out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, save 400 young men who rode upon the camels and fled. I'm fascinated with that verse. I mean, he got them all except these 400 that made it out. So I don't know whether they knocked off 100 and 400 got away or whether 1,000, it's interesting, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have any, uh, <laughs> no one got away except these 400. <laughs> All right. David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away and rescued his two wives. Verse 19 there, and there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took the flocks and the herds, which they drove before their, those other cattle, and said, this is David's spoil. And David came to the 200 men who were so faint that they could not follow David. In other words, he goes back where they left these 200 guys by the ravine whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people who were with them. And David came near to the people and he greeted them. Then answered all the wicked men and worthless fellows of those who went with David. In other words, within his own 400 that did the assault, there were those that were murmurers. In every group there's some, right? And they argued, because they went not with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. In other words, since they stuck it out here, sitting on the baggage, these 200 aren't entitled to the spoil. We'll obviously give them back their own wives and kids, but that's it. The spoil belongs to those that fought the battle. Seems logical, doesn't it? Not to David. Verse 23, then said David, Ye shall not do so, my brethren. With that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. So he's saying, hey, you guys, you 400 didn't get that spoil. The Lord gave it to us. Verse 24, for who shall hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is who goeth down to battle, so shall his part be who tarrieth behind the baggage. They shall divide alike. In other words, David's saying, line and staff, both count. Verse 25, And it was so from that day onward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. And we'll see as we go, to, you know, that this, this principle that David laid down endures because of the issue at Ziklag. Verse 26, and when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. David is shrewd. He's, not, he's going to give some of the spoil, not only to the people back in Judah, but he's going to 
increases popularity in a number of other quarters. Watch this. Verse 27. To them who were in Bethel, and to them who were in South Ramoth, and to them who were in Jatir, and to them who were in Aror, and to them who were in Sifmoth, and to them who were in Eshtemoah, and to them who were in Rachel, and to them who were in the cities of the Jeremelites, and to them who were in the cities of the Kenites. And I couldn't do it twice, so we'll just keep moving. And to them who were in Hormah, and to them who were in Barashan, and to them who were in Atak. To them who were in Hebron, and to them, and to all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to haunt. <laughs> I won't touch that one. We'll be more. But see, these are, it's going to become very important because David is on the rise and, and Saul is dead. He's on the move and he's, 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 he's acknowledging his constituency here. Chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons. And the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through, and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was very much afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his own sword and died with him. So Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men that same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and they who were on the other side of the Jordan saw the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Something else I was going to point out here, but okay, we'll keep moving. Who vacated the throne of Israel? Saul did. Saul did. Yes, he was. I mean, who, 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 Saul did. Saul did what David had refused to do. Kind of interesting. Great irony there. <clears throat> okay, we see the defeat is so great that the northern regions are abandoned. The Philistines come and dwelt in them. Verse 8. It came to pass on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent into the land of the Philistines roundabout to publish it in the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and buried them there. And they took the bones 
and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So ends First Samuel. The men of Jabesh-Gilead, there was always a very special relationship between Saul and Jabesh-Gilead and the men. Very interesting situation. The men risked their lives to go into the Philistine city to recover the body and bones to give it a proper burial. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Okay. A couple of quick observations and we're through here. By the way, cremation is not a normal Hebrew practice, but uh, it was done in certain cases. Genesis 38, 24, Leviticus 20, 14, 21, 9, and Joshua 7, 25. The cremation here due to the, the, uh, the desecration by the Philistines. What was Saul's failure? So we, we criticize Saul. He's obviously he, he declined spiritually. What was his failure? His failure was disobedience. Disobedience to the will and the word of God. Even the New Testament is a call to obedience. Maybe of a little different kind, but it's a call to obedience. Saul served well in the military capacity, was unable to resolve the conflicts in his own soul. His, spiritual, his military advances were clouded, of course, by his whole the tragic spiritual failures. Now, that's Saul. That's Old Testament, right? Jesus Christ put a new priority on obedience in John 14, 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we should not be very cavalier as we read Saul and realized he blew it and realized that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, called us to obedience also. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I assume we'll roll right into Second Samuel next time. We'll discover that Saul didn't really quite die. He had an Amalekite to finish it off, and David deals with that in an interesting way. In any case, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just praise you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you have given us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have gone to such extremes to establish communication with us, that with us, indeed, Father, you're not silent but that you love us so much that you can't take your eyes off us. Father, we would just ask you to fill us with your spirit that we might walk with you, that we might be sensitive to your will in our lives, that we might indeed hear you as you call to us. Father, we would just ask that you would indeed help us to grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this concludes the first Samuel study by Chuck Messler. The study that Chuck did that preceded this one was first and second Thessalonians, and what he'll go on to next is second Samuel.